Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I have to say I was intrigued walking in, uh, seeing the graveyard of analogue books. <laughs> were you trying to like get rid of them or no, was it kind of I, like a lending library for visitors lending library it's a lending library um i think uh there's a quite a lot of avid readers in our firm uh who still like physical books so i mean i, I didn't see too many game of thrones it was more kind of flash boys yeah and yeah it's more uh more professional professional books uh i the last time I read a physical book was something I, I took from here. You know, I'm a Kindle. You know, I really I am too. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of weird though because I, 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 I'm nostalgic about physical books and I yeah. even buy them sometimes. But I almost feel like they speak to me too slowly. <laughs> like you sort of. You well, have it's also a, convenience. You know, if you're if you're somebody like me, you read two or three books at the same time. You know, one you're reading for work, one you're reading for pleasure. You don't want to be carrying around a library in your bag. So I love the idea of just being able to stick it up my phone. I'm having a cup of tea, uh, Herbal, uh, with uh, Ramya Joseph, who is the founder of Peffin, uh, which is the world's first uh, f- financial artificial intelligence uh, for ad- advice. Yeah, that's for right. financial advice. That's right. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, I'm very glad we finally got to meet because uh, I've, I've been following the company for, for some time. And it's one of those things that... Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to financial advisors, and they kind of fear it a bit, like they, a bit like Skynet, like the the uh, the arrival of robo advisors coming to take their jobs and livelihood. But it's a much more interesting and complex tale, I think, yep. as we're going to discover. Yep, absolutely. I think that you know, financial services in general is shifting so much. You know, from a tech perspective, from an expectations perspective, from a product model to a trust model. And there's just so much tech can offer to to financial services. It's it's been generally one of the laggards in innovation. It's always been the dinosaur that kind of you know sits behind while tech takes over other areas. And I think it's like very very good that it's come to its doorstep and people have recognized the impact fintech's having. On now, it. before you were designing financial AIs, you your real passion was. Math is that, is that right? Yeah, I, your dad. I, your dad was big into math. My dad was big into math, and you know he was an engineer. He was a master's in physics, and I think from a very young age he tried to instill what I would like to call curiosity in mathematics. Right? It's not so much uh, learning formulas and learning you know theorems, but really about understanding where do you see relationships and how do people describe them in, in mathematical terms without using actual um, you know formulas. And it happens at a very young age, so that what ha- you get very comfortable with mathematics, you don't fear it. And so, when a lot of the times when people ask, you know, why. Why did you choose AI? Why did you choose con- computer science? It really stems from that curiosity to solve problems. Right. right? He, he saw math as a way of solving problems. Yes, right? absolutely. And, and, and this is why he wouldn't let you have a calculator. Yes. So I, re- I still <laughs> remember this. High school calculus in the United States, you buy this TI-90, it was like a $100 calculator. And I remember him telling me, I'm not buying you that calculator because you don't need a calculator to do integrals. And I remember thinking, I'm going to fail every exam because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be timed with the understanding of a calculator. But it was the best decision he ever made because 
at that time, you know, you, you're going through high school, all your classmates are, you know, from the U.S., etc. And um, when you go into higher studies, like graduate school, you're now competing on an international platform. And the kids learning mathematics in Paris or mathematics in China are not buying $100 calculators. So when I went to graduate school, it was really interesting because of a class of about 75 students, and I had done two masters, really they were like two American students. Everybody right. else was international. And, and, and actually this is interesting because there's a lot of talk now about computational thinking and the ability to solve problems with data and algorithms. But yeah. this is really the same sort of foundational skill, isn't it? Yeah. Of, of, of using a mathematical or scientific approach to break things down into smaller pieces. Yes, that's absolutely right. And it's one of those skill sets that if you learn how to break a problem down into its critical components, you're stronger as an engineer, you're stronger in any profession, right? Yeah. That, you know, it's, it's a really good skill set. So I know there's definitely people who are never going to be wired towards mathematics and it should never be forced, you know, uh, but it's it's one of those things that if you can instill that curiosity at a young age, I think a, a lot of the times people fear math um, or, or they find it above their heads and it, it doesn't have to be that way. You didn't stay in computer science for long. You you ended up in um, algorithmic trading in, 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 the big, in the big New York's financial sector. I did. So, so tell me about that. Yeah, so I... Um, you know, when I, I graduated out of computer science, I started uh, working at IBM, but I had a fellowship from the National Science Foundation to go to graduate school, which I pushed as much as I could out <laughs> by two years because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But eventually I, I, I came back to my, my interest in math and I, um, I decided to pursue my uh, master's in financial engineering and a second master's in AI and machine learning. and. This was when both fields were relatively still new and not so not so commonplace, right? right? It was uh, the AI winter was still yeah, <laughs> it was, was close, it yeah. was, and um, uh, you know naturally it was a really good fit because to Wall Street because I had the AI background, I had the the computer science background, now I had the financial engineering background, and so you know, naturally got pulled into a Wall Street firm. Um, I worked in an area called algorithmic trading. Uh, it's in, you know, at, just at the time when electronic trading was, was you know, coming out and alive in the, in the markets. It was in the early 2000s, uh, you know, and, and I saw how electronic trading shifted the industry. Right. I, I was part of that change that where it went from 15 to 20% of trading volume to 90 plus percent. This is the rise of the quants. This was the rise of the quants. Mm. And then during, you know, in the, in, you know, 2007, 2008, uh, I left Morgan Stanley to join Goldman Sachs as a prop trader in uh, high frequency trading. And I saw the fall of the quants, <laughs> right? That was a quant meltdown. Right. So I've and what, what, what drove that? Uh, there was just a lot of, uh, you know, factors within the market where, a lot of the quant shops were basically trading the same factors and you know one person does poorly well everybody it's like it was a, basically a rising and sinking tide right, right. Um, so and there were glitches also people suffered losses through you know electronic glitches that occurred but um, I've seen how transformative uh, tech can be to an industry how algorithms can be to an industry 
I also saw firsthand the resistance that comes with that, right? You know, a lot of my very good friends at Morgan Stanley were the actual cash traders and the, the physical traders. But the ones that do, did exceptionally well were the ones that embraced that technology and said, look, this frees me up to really service a, this client better, or this frees me up to actually have mental capacity to think about a different problem, as opposed to the ones that said, oh, this is taking my job away. Right. And I think that's what's happening here in financial services and in financial advice as well, is you will have a, a camp those that say, this is taking my job, and those that say, this is an enabler for my business because I can now service clients better, I can service more of them, I can add value in different ways. And I think that that's, that's where the industry is going to consolidate and become smart. There was a personal dimension for you as well, though, around this time, wasn't there? Because you were, you'd spent so much time making money for millionaires. I did. Um, <laughs> that you did you start looking around thinking about how you could leverage technology and algorithms to serve a wider community yeah absolutely so around the time of the financial crisis uh, my dad lost his job um, and was faced with an unplanned early retirement and i came from a really modest <coughs> uh, family background and you know just to help him navigate that retirement you know i put together this massive excel spreadsheet for it you know? <laughs> it took me two weeks it was you know looked at everything from medicare and social security and his benefits and my mom's job i mean just so many factors and but i finally went down to his house and sat with him and explained it and and i think the relief uh was palpable right and and he finally was like you know like he got it. Like it was like he got what, it. What question were you trying to answer? Through I the was process? I was trying to answer for him. What does he have to do in order to secure his retirement? Because he just he didn't expect to have to retire early. And in fact, he was sixty and he'd lost his job and he was thinking about getting another job. And I was like, "You're sixty, and the job market is." terrible right now like people my age are getting laid off so I was like you know you really have to think about whether you can retire now and continue to live your life happily right and it required making certain sacrifices my mom worked longer than she expected um, they they did you know think about downsizing their home into a cheaper location in Florida so they can you know have tax benefits there and things like that but I I, I think that He's so intelligent. My dad's a double master's, my mom's a PhD, but when it comes to their money, just the sheer volume of factors that can affect your financial outcome is mind-boggling. Yes. And the information is not there. It's not at your fingertips anyway, right? And, and this is something where actually high intelligence actually makes life harder. Yeah. Because you start to perceive the scale of the problem. Yes. <laughs> and you walk away and then you go into this mode of despair and then worry and then the emotions get the best of you, right? Yeah. And But just having somebody sit down, sort through the information patiently, not getting overwhelmed is is relieving, right? And a lot, And it's not that he didn't approach financial advisors, but he was just sold product you know everybody was like oh you should consider an annuity or a variable life insurance or whatever and he's like that's not what i'm looking for i'm, I'm the question i'm looking to answer is how do i can i actually retire without purchasing anything from you where do i stand and what 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 decisions can i make today and that's where it got me thinking you know how do you actually scale 
advice and, and offered in a way that is truly fiduciary, you know, that has n a no strings attached, you don't have to transact with us, this is for your benefit, take it or leave it, in a way that was affordable, mm -hmm. right? And the, minute, and the only way to make things affordable is to do it through technology, because technology can scale. Mm -hmm. And this is technology that just hasn't been built before. So it took me six months to really lay out the problem, think about the tech that would power it, um, before I was okay with walking in and resigning from my job. You know, I mean, it, it was, it took a long time to really lay out the foundation for a platform like ours. Right. And, and essentially now, where, where did you get to with that? I mean, what kinds of data do you look at? And what are the levers in people's personal life that are, that are the most you know, influenced to their ultimate financial outcomes? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we look at so much data from, you know, down to your neighborhood, how much does daycare cost? What are property taxes? You know, how much could you afford for a home? If you change locations, what, how does that impact college tuition rates, Medicare rates? Right. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you do that big ingest? I, I mean, does it require someone sitting down and answering a survey for two days or, or is no, it more no, of a no. dynamic process? It's a dynamic process. So we have an onboarding process where we ask the user certain questions we need to know about you, right? Like, where do you live? Are you married? Do you, do you, you know, what have you saved today, et cetera? So just like a financial advisor, we need to understand a starting point with a user. Then we help users create these financial plans, which is, do you want to have a baby? Do you want to buy a house? Do you want to go to college? What makes us really different is we're able to ingest how every decision you want to make in your life, from children to college to career changes, not only affects one another, but really inter, you know, interplays with one another. Like if you buy too big a home, what does that mean for retirement, right? right? Um, and, then, and there's sort of a rules engine essentially that contains all the regulations and tax rates and it's constantly... So it's, it's, it's more of a neural network. Right. And so it's not, it, if it was a rules engine, it would become completely intractable because any one factor, something as simple as let's say where you live affects you and your taxes, affects your income, affects how much you spend, affects what house you can buy. So I want a system where if a user says, I want to move from New York to San Francisco, for example, they do nothing other than just tell me that. And we just tell them, here's all the impacts that occur to your life. And here's right. what you need to do next. It's right? actually described as a feed forward neural network. What, what does that mean exactly? It means that it doesn't back, back propagate. And right. that, you know, so a, a deep learning neural network or a lot of neural networks will back propagate through time and learn, right? But we, uh, we don't have training data. Right, and so those those uh, neural networks work very well in what's called supervised learning, where you yes. have to train the model. You've got massive amounts of data. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you were a big, uh, I guess, bank, you could essentially look at all of the, you know fifteen years of data of people's transaction habits. You could, but here's the thing, right? Uh, one is your life has changed over 15 years, right. right? And so, looking over the span of 15 years, we're probably going to draw some amount of incorrect conclusions unless we know the complete picture about you. And the total context. Total context about right. you. So how Peffin learns about you is you start, you come into the system and we get about three months of spending data. And over time, we get smarter and smarter about your unique spending fingerprint, your unique consumption patterns. Mm. When do you tend to spend more money? When do you tend to spend less money? Are you a spender? Are you a saver? We never ask you those questions. We just learn that about you over time. And that drives the advice we give you, right? If we know, for example, that you always spend more money in July, 
right? Then when we give you advice to save money, we know July is going to be an off month for you and we'll never come back and tell you, oh, that was terrible, you, you missed your mark. We know you're going to miss your mark in that month, you know? So, so. The, the design of this type of learning network, does it require identifying certain in advance certain key behaviors that you're looking for essentially? Yes, it, 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 it involves not uh, identifying just behavior, it, it really ident involves identifying the unique sort of financial profile of that user, right? How you spend money is very different from how I spend money. Where I live and what I do is going to change the way I give advice. If I have, for example, like if you have kids and a mortgage, the advice you receive is very different if you're just single with an income, right? And so we look through that information set to really deliver how how should you save? You know, what what are the benefits of saving in a in a tax deferred account versus like a taxable account? Do you have upcoming liquidity needs? So it's not always advisable to invest in the markets. If you need money for a house or money for your children, the markets may not be the best place for you. And we'll tell you that. If you have expensive student debt, right, or credit card debt, we will tell you to pay off those loans because those are guaranteed returns. As the, you're doing to, it in a transparent way so people understand the trade-offs, presumably. People, people so, understand the trade-offs. So you're actually coaching them on behavior. Yes, we're go. coaching them on behavior. And we never try to, when you set up your plans, one of our core principles is we really don't recommend uh, sh you know, investing to meet short-term goals, right. which is something that really separates us from a traditional robo model. Like a robo doesn't care whether you have a ton of student debt. A robo doesn't care if you want to buy a house in one year or 10 years, right? We do. We're like, if you have an, an event coming up next year and it's not affordable, you can't invest towards it. You have to make sacrifices in other areas or other events to be able to meet your goals in the short term. You can invest and do things differently for longer horizons, but shorter horizons carry risk. And so there's a huge trade-off between liquidity need and risk taking, and that's exactly what we manage. Even if you're a traditional financial advisor, you know, when you, when you look at the complexity of, of people's life situations, the decisions, it, it seems insane that any human being will ever design a financial plan in five years' time. Yeah. Uh, but there's still presumably a role, just like there is a role for a doctor who breaks the bad news to you, you know, yeah. when the AI has diagnosed your, um, you know, your tumor, Yeah. that there's a role potentially for human beings to provide an interface with the data, something like um, you create with the human being. Yeah, I think that one, there's two things, right? I, I don't know if humans are just an interface. I think that that's part of it. But I think there's always situations, whether it's in financial services or medicine, where you're going to need human expertise, right? So let's say something like Peffin can handle 90 to 95% of your very vanilla financial situations. You know, people have loans, people have, you know, investments, people, but there'll always be a situation where somebody is having a complex estate need, a complex legal need, um, something that's unusual, that the AI is not gonna understand these right. very nuanced areas. And that's that takes me back to what I was saying. You know, if, if an advisor realizes, hey, I could really add value in your life to those nuanced areas, just think about, you know, how much better the client relationship is. Right, if I'm an advisor and I have a client and every day I'm trying to just 
get a hold of my client and sell them product and they're constantly like, I don't want to talk about this. But I'm able to say, okay, look, I saw that you created this financial plan. I saw you're following this advice. But there's this really interesting tax law that might be applicable to you and I can help you take advantage of that. Well, all of a sudden you're invaluable to me because this AI thing is taking care of 90%, but you're adding that real like sort differentiated like exceptions value. management almost? Almost like an exceptions management, almost like a concierge service, right? Where you are, you are delivering value in a way that really requires human expertise, hmm. right? And that's where you know, people in jobs today are going to be pushed. You know, they're going to be pushed to develop an expertise that can't be automated away. Yeah, I mean, when you think more broadly, just beyond financial services, uh, as we automate and use AI to make more and more routine type decisions or decisions that require massive amounts of data and complexity, yeah, where do the human beings add the most value? I is it looking for those you know, outliers, the exceptions, the nuanced type situations, or is there more more things? I think it's more things than that. I think that, um, you know, there's always, and I say this a lot to a lot of people, there's always going to be a human that needs to write the AI, right? right? That needs to decipher what is the problem that we actually need to solve. You know, a machine can solve the problem, but it actually takes human intelligence to break that problem down into a series of solvable steps. I'm not saying that AI can't get there, but we're nowhere near there, right? Yeah. Um, understanding um, desirability of products. You know, we can build the world's first AI financial advisor, but if we don't make the product emotionally uh, interesting and contextually relevant, those are things that only humans understand about other humans, right? Well, I mean, the idea of what constitutes a great human experience is a very analog concept. It's a very analog concept. And that is very, very hard to digitize. Now, could you support what's a great human experience via data? Of course, right? And, and systems can gather that data, but you can slice and dice that data, but it will be a human who will interpret that and draw a conclusion, right? That yeah. says, oh, because I'm seeing this in the data, this is the experience, or this is... We were talking about this before. It's this sort of the difference between uh, pattern recognition and pattern precognition, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's what I, I, I like to call intuition, right? right? It's a real... You call it mathematical intuition. I, I called it math... Because if I interview a quant or an AI, um, you know, an AI engineer, you know, I'll ask them a series of questions which I know they can solve, but then I'll always throw something their way and say, and which I know will take a very long time to solve, but I'll say, you don't have a lot of time. So what's your intuition around the situation? And, you know, I test for that. And it's one of those things that you'll get just because we're, humans are so contextually aware, we're able to make connections across fields. We're able to we're able to learn from mistakes in a way that AI cannot, mm -hmm. right? And what do you what do you mean by that? In the sense that an AI engine, if you train it, let's say, will consider an outcome as positive or negative, or probabilistically weighted one way versus another, right? Well, through the process of failure, humans learn a lot more. Think about the number of problems, like a, a researcher, right? The number of failures that they see in an experiment before they land on success, each had the path to failure teaches you something. Right. Which, they're, not, they're not just trying to fit the data to a model. Exactly. Right? 
they're, they're trying to think at a meta level around the nature of the models themselves. That's right. That's right. And that that is where humans will always add value. Mm. But it is a higher order of thinking. It isn't mechanical, right? And if we can shift our industries in a way where that capability of humans is is lifted, right? And you free humans up using AI and technology to be able to really deliver value, you could end up with a much more interesting set of products and experiences and technology and so on. Well, what do you think the real source of that is? Is it our capacity to have memory? Or is it almost our forgetfulness that, you know, so we end up, you know, looking for heuristics and connections between things? Um, I, I think it is... It is not. Uh, it is not just memory. Humans are, I think, very curious. We have a curiosity. Most of us want to learn. Most of us always want to get better. We don't want to stay where we are five years from now. We don't want it to. We want it better for our kids. We want it better for the next generation. And that's what's always inched us forward. Versus technology is a byproduct of that, hmm. right? Technology in and of itself doesn't have curiosity. And so if everything stems from this desire to solve a problem, whatever it may be, right? That's, that is like the human element that really is difficult to replicate away. And this is often my, my debate with people that believe that corporations will all be replaced by you know, blockchain decentralized autonomous. <laughs> organizations because they assume that you almost have this godlike ability to foresee all possible circumstances right and, and, and that can all be boiled in at the time of creation then you just set this loose but but human complexity is always adapting and evolving we always want more we always want more that's exactly right and it's what do I say you know there is no we are such an adaptive creature, right? It's, it's, we are so good at understanding what it is in our environment that's super important, whether it's in tech, whether it's in medicine, and we're so good at like staying focused on a problem until we're able to solve it. Mm. You know, if you really think about the human mindset spending we have research in medicine, in, in computer science, that's ongoing for 20 years, 30 years. It never ends. And, and that's, that's what really makes us very distinct from AI. You know, if you really think about AI, it is a confluence of statistics. It is probability theory. It is mathematics and it is computer science and operations research that have come together to create this field, right? And it's a, that's a very powerful interdisciplinary field, but it's a human that created that. Yeah. It, was a ser it was a combination of humans that pulled those thoughts, those processes together to create this field of study called AI. It's still going to be taught by humans. It's still going to be nurtured by humans. So if you're, if you're looking for people with mathematical intuition when you're hiring machine learning programmers, what kinds of skills do you think that non-technical people need to have, leaders in organizations? I mean, they don't need to learn how to code, presumably, or use TensorFlow, but, yeah. but what are the new types of, I guess, mental frameworks or questions that they need to be able to have in order to be successful in these very scale-up, data-driven environments? Yeah, I think the simplest thing is they need to view tech as an enabler and be very comfortable in um, bringing in 
people who are comfortable in tech if they themselves are not into making decisions. Because I think organizations are and will continue to leverage tech heavily in yeah. growing not just their their products, but actually their business lines. But, but it's more than just being comfortable. I mean, they almost have to be the ones driving the change to almost design themselves out of their work. Basically, yeah. They have to be that, <laughs> that okay with it, yeah. right? You know, they have to be totally fine with saying, when does it make sense to introduce automation? When does it make sense to, to you know, take this staff and say, we're going to replace this part with technology? They have to become okay with that. And that's very difficult, you know, if you're used to a tr much more traditional businesses. And, you know, so people who've always run people-focused, like people-heavy businesses, like, oh, we'll just staff up now have to change and do a 360 of no no you don't that's not the option always to staff up right? even when you guys run meetings in your organization i mean is it really just ruled by data or how do you actually make decisions like a good or oh, bad that's decision? so interesting because for an ai firm we are incredibly people focused that's, that's why I asked. yeah no i mean we are we are so focused on um the thoughts people bring to a meeting, you know, it's it's there's very little data that actually drives our meetings. <laughs> it's really so how, funny. How, how do you make a good decision? Mm, that's a really good decision. That's a really good question. Um, I think every decision starts with what is the problem we're trying to solve, right? It's like is and then you weigh down: is this an important enough problem? Is this is this going to have a big enough impact? Uh, for us to go down this path of actually trying to solve it. If we get a confirmation on that side, and a lot of that is, is twofold. One is if it's like a product type of problem, we may ask users, right? We actually talk to human beings. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> amount of time that I spend talking to users is like way more than actually looking at analytics data, right? And uh, then, then we go down the path of stuff like, okay, if this is the way, you know, we have to solve this, what is what is the solution? And that's where brainstorming comes in. I mean, you can look around my office, there's whiteboards everywhere. And that's because we do a lot of free-form thought. And with free-form thought, it's like we're just literally throwing spaghetti on the walls, writing things down on paper. It has no actual sequential like logic to it. And then somebody who owns that project will take it away and try to bring structure. And then from there, we go, we go down the path of actually solving the problem. But you saw none of that. Data might influence certain parts of our thought process. We might look at data to see, oh, we are seeing this happen, this statistic. But that's just a small element of, of okay, there is a problem. After that, the solution drives itself through a lot of intuition. And then we constantly test our, our theory. It's right. very experimental in nature. You're yeah. taking a Bayesian approach. Very Bayesian, <laughs> very Bayesian approach. Rami, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's really an inspiring story. Um, thank you very much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.